Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so excited. Uh, I love Father's Day. Uh, I'm so grateful for my dad. Uh, later this summer, uh, we will head to Winnipeg to celebrate my dad's 90th birthday. Yeah, exactly. And actually, we'll do a dual birthday because my mom turns 90 in September as well. Uh, yeah. And it is, if my math is right, their 69th wedding anniversary. So, the, uh, I said, yeah, this year was my 30th wedding anniversary. I went, well, I'm just getting started. <laughs> I'm just, just barely married in, uh, compared to my parents. Uh, so, yeah, excited. So grateful for the role that my father played in my life. Uh, in the life of my boys, and uh, yeah, very thankful for fathers. Uh, and obviously, God the Father is our model of what it means to be a father. So, even if you had difficulty with your dad, uh, God, God is a good and faithful father, and He's the picture we look at. Uh, this morning, we're continuing on in our First Peter series, um, uh, living in the real world, and you can turn to First Peter five and Matthew four are the two texts, and in the Pew Bibles, it's page 809 and page uh, 1017 are the, the two texts. So I have two questions for you this morning to begin. There might be a little bit of a strange, both strange questions. The first question is, do you have anyone in your life that you would consider to be your enemy? Like anyone who wants to like cause you serious harm. Like I'm not saying... Someone who you disagree with. Someone you have, you know, a personal conflict with. You don't get along with at work or your neighborhood or in your strata or whatever it may be. Uh, but someone who actually wants to harm you. Well, this morning, if you are here and you would put yourself in the category of being a Christ follower, someone who would say, my identity is that of following Jesus. Uh, I believe in him. I follow him. Uh, if someone asks me, who are you? I would say, I am a Christ follower. If that is how you identify yourself, you have an enemy. And you have an enemy that actually wants to destroy you. That is the agenda of that enemy. Who am I talking about? First Peter 5, verse 8. Uh, in the New Living Translation, it says this. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. English Standard Version says, your adversary, the devil. So that's the first question. Do you have an enemy? Second question is, do you believe me? Now, do you believe that there's a spiritual being called the devil? Goes by many names, Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, the adversary, the dragon, the enemy, the serpent, the tester, the wicked one. Do you believe that he exists? Now, I know some of you are struggling in believing that... Actually, the, the being known as the devil exists. How do I know that? Statistics tell me that. Uh, so here's a couple of statistics. Uh, these are American statistics, but actually I think given the state of Canadian culture, I think actually we'd be further down the line than the U.S. on this. So there was a survey done in, in the U.S. of uh, the general population. 70% of Americans believe uh, in the devil. Half of those people believe that the devil is the idea of evil. 
Okay, so then some more surveys were done amongst people who self-declare as Christians. And of the people who self-declare as Christians, of those, 50% believe that the devil is real. And 50% believe that it's just the concept of evil. There is no being called the devil. In addition to that, surveys show us that what Christians are getting involved in spiritually tied to uh, playing with spiritual power and spiritual forces. So 20% of Christians believe in astrology, reincarnation, spiritual energy in trees and nature. 17% believe in the evil eye, which is known as casting curses on others. 25% say they've been in touch with the dead. 17% say they have seen or been, been in the presence of a ghost. So as I said, my personal experience would cause me to believe that Canadians as a culture, as a whole, are further down the road in their beliefs and they're dabbling with spiritual powers and looking for spiritual experiences. And there is this, I think, thought that there is benevolent spiritual power. So yeah, I don't have to go to God. I don't, have to, I don't have to go to the devil. There's sort of neutral spiritual power out there that I can tap into for my own benefit. I've run into that often. Now, currently, as I said, there is this great openness and search for spiritual experiences and spiritual power. On one hand, that's a really good thing because people are searching spiritually. On the other hand, the bad thing is there's a real search for spiritual power and experiences. That's also a bad thing because people are opening themselves up naively to everything under the sun. Now, some of you who are here, you come from different uh, parts of the world. And when I asked you the first question, said, is there an enemy? You go, of course there is. Do you believe me? Of course I do. Because you know from the cultures you come from, the spiritual powers are very real. I've traveled enough around the world to have been in those places where that's never a question. In fact, the only question I'd say in those contexts is, uh, as we've shared the gospel, is which power is greater? That's the only question that's being asked there, is which power is greater? Now, in Scripture, the Bible refers to the devil 35 times. Uh, the word Satan, or the name Satan, is used 54 times. He appears first in Genesis chapter 3, last in Revelation 20. So he is present for the, for the whole scope of human history. Jesus tells us uh, who the devil is and refers to him as a personal being. So if we believe in Christ, if we call ourselves Christ followers, if we believe in the authority of the Bible, then we have to take the Bible and the devil seriously. Otherwise, we actually are rejecting the authority of the Bible and Jesus' teaching. That's what's actually happening. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, then the devil is not an issue for you because, frankly, you're already on his team. I know that can sound harsh, but there's only two teams. There's only the kingdom of evil and the kingdom of God. That's all there is. There's only two spiritual forces, the kingdom of evil and the kingdom of God. There is no neutral demilitarized zone. Like that does not exist. The two kingdoms are up against each other. That is the reality of the world we live in. So how do we as Christians engage with this? According to Pastor Tim Keller, he says there's two pitfalls in our thinking about Satan. He uses the word superstition and substition. Superstition 
is a common is commonly held beliefs that are not true. So in superstition, it's, it's when people sort of blame everything on the on the devil. I lost my keys. Oh, it must be the devil. I got a traffic ticket. Oh, it must be the devil. You know, I didn't get my parking spot at Willingdon. It must be the devil. Someone sitting in my seat this morning. That's yeah, got to be the devil. Uh, you know, we go down those roads. We blame everything. Everything is the devil's fault. Uh, is where that goes. The flip side is substition, which is not giving enough credit to a generally known fact. So did you wake up this morning thinking, I have an enemy who wants to devour me? I didn't. I don't wake, I don't wake up that way any day. And yet so often we don't think about the influence of the evil one of the devil on our relationships. Usually it's on our relationships because that's how it manifests most profoundly is relationally. On our attitudes, on our actions, on our thinking. So how do we respond? 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Another translation puts it this way. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him. And be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. So here's the first point. Live with your eyes open. Live with your eyes open. Verse 8 says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the the devil. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. So it's telling us to live aware. Don't be naive. Don't be foolish. And when he says be sober-minded, it's the idea of spiritual uh, sobriety. To be clear-headed, clear-minded in our thinking. Free from confusion. Free from passions that drive us all over the place. You cannot be watchful if you're not clear-minded. So if we think of sobriety, we think of, if you think of alcohol, you go, okay, well, if I'm under the influence of alcohol, I'm not clear-minded, a person under the influence of alcohol makes very poor decisions. We know that. They make poor financial decisions. They make poor relational decisions. They make poor driving decisions. There's just a whole list of poor decisions when we're not sober in the physical realm. He's saying spiritually it's the same thing. Be spiritually sober. Be spiritually clear-minded. How does that happen? How do you become spiritually clear-minded, spiritually sober? It's because you know the Word of God. It's because you're growing in the Word of God, which is the truth of God. It's because your prayer life is growing. Your experience with the Holy Spirit is increasing. It's because your, your spiritual sensitivities are becoming more and more sensitive because you know God, you know His Word, you're applying it to your life You're living in obedience to the Spirit. And as that happens, you become increasingly clear-minded. Your sensitivity to the evil one increases. Your sensitivity to temptation increases. You recognize a lie sooner. You recognize untruth sooner is what happens. That's what Peter is telling us to do. How does the devil function? The devil is known 
And Satan is known as the adversary, the slanderer, the accuser. He loves to slander. He loves to accuse. He loves to point uh, words at you that will drag you down. He loves to tell you, hey, you know what? You're not good enough for God. You know, if the people at church found out what you did this week, oh, they'd be so disappointed. God would be so, you should stay home. In fact, you shouldn't tell anybody. Definitely don't go forward for prayer for that. You should keep it private. What's he trying to do? He's trying to isolate you. He's trying to keep you alone. He's trying to buy into lies. He's slandering you to yourself in your mind. That's what he's working at doing. And take you farther and farther away from Christ. Take you farther away from God. Or he'll say to you things like, you know what? You deserve to do that thing that you really want to do. Yeah, God wouldn't like it, but you know what? That doesn't really matter. You deserve that. And he tries to get you to elevate yourself above God. So really, you become God. Because you deserve it. You've earned it. C.S. Lewis, the great author, says, there's two mistakes Christians make in talking about Satan. We either joke about him or we ignore him. We either joke about him or we ignore him. Here's the other one for North America particularly. We make him a Hollywood special effect. So in the mid-1970s, there's some movies that came out. Uh, The Exorcist, probably the most famous one that's been redone, I don't know how many times. Uh, Rosemary's Baby is another one. It was some of the first movies that, that actually turned evil and Satan into a special effect. And now, if you look today, well, what's in TV? What's in the movie theaters? Like, every second new series is about evil and the supernatural. So as soon as Satan became a special effect, people didn't take him seriously and invited him into their living rooms by watching the movies, by getting engaged in that, in that medium of, of, uh, of Hollywood. And so now suddenly he's either a cartoon character, he's a special effect, you don't take him seriously, you say it's harmless. But no, it's what you fill your mind with. It's what you fill your mind with. And now you're not clear thinking, you're not clear headed. Verse 8, my translation, wake up. Pay attention, Christ followers. You are involved in a spiritual battle. You need to know the enemy and his characteristics. You need to know who your enemy is. Biblically, Satan is described as the prince of this world. His residence is on earth, and he and his hordes move from place to place. He can only be in one place at a time. He is limited because he's, he's not on the level of God. He's, a, he's a, an angel, a fallen angel. But because of that the earth is the devil's territory until Jesus returns. And so that's why those who claim the name of Christ are under attack. He's in a rebellion against God. His first goal was to destroy Jesus, which he thought he had accomplished but failed. And then his goal is also to destroy the angels who follow God and God's people. That's what he wants to do. The Bible speaks uh, continually about the active rebellion of Satan. He is cunning, he is personal, and he tries to attack Christ's followers and disrupt the body and create disunity. One of the greatest negative witnesses to the world is when the church is not unified, right? When the devil comes to bring disunity amongst us. Biblical writers take the existence of Satan and evil spirits for granted and portray them as opposing God and God's people. He wants to seed destruction into this world. So what do we do? Verse 8, the second half of verse 8 says, uh, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now it's interesting because most often in scripture 
Uh, the devil is referred to as a snake. Sneaky, slithering, right? Garden of Eden. And this, in this, the analogy is a, of a lion. Now, if you call someone a lion, generally it's a positive word, right? You go, oh man, they're strong. They're... If you call someone a snake, I don't know if that ever been said as a compliment. Generally we go, oh, that's not very nice. But here, he's not being sneaky. He's being aggressive is the picture. If you ever watch the Nature Channel on how lions hunt, you learn a couple of interesting things. Uh, generally, the hunting by, in a, a pride of lions is done by the females. Uh, they generally go in a group, and they'll, they'll sneak up and attack, say, a herd of antelope, try and, try and get one of them away from the herd, either the young or the weak or the foolish, and they pounce on the one who's separated from the herd. Where's the male lion? The male lion is actually uh, guarding his territory. So they all have their region. They guard it against, well, it's people and against other lions. And so they are prowling the edge of their territory. That's what they're doing. And they will join a hunt occasionally if it's a really big animal. Then they'll jump, then they'll join in. But otherwise, they are actually prowling. And if there's a conflict there, there will be lots of roaring. There's no sneaking, right? It's battle. That is what is happening in that case. And actually, as I said, uh, when they hunt, they want to try and pull one animal away from a herd. Satan tries to pull Christ followers away from the herd, away from the community. That's what he tries to do. So when we promote small groups at William, we promote service together or those kinds of things, we don't do it just because we like to organize things. That's not why we do it. We do it because we know there is strength in community. There is spiritual wisdom in community. If you are isolated spiritually, you are vulnerable spiritually. You don't have access to the wisdom of the body of Christ, the support of the body of Christ, the truth in the body of Christ. So what does Satan typically try to get you to do if you're not in a good space? Oh, don't bother going to church today. Just stay home. You don't need the church. You can do this on your own. You're strong enough on your own. You're better off without them. They probably don't like you anyway. They all dress funny. He'll try and do anything to get you away from God's people. When I had little kids, I don't know how many times the biggest fight of the week with kids was Sunday morning on the way to church. Or with my wife, the fight was on the way to church. Like we were good for six days and now Sunday morning we decide we're going to fight now. And we'd stop sometimes and go, okay, wait a minute. We think there's an enemy who's trying to get us off our game here because we're fighting about something really stupid. Like this is really petty. He wants to pull you out of community because then you're vulnerable, then you're weak. And how does he, what does he want to do? He wants to devour you. The Greek word for devour literally means to drink down. So it's consuming. You're really thirsty, right? You're going to drink it all down really rapidly. When I think, when I read that, I went, okay, I have three boys. And when my boys were teenagers, our food bill was bigger than our mortgage. And I'm not joking. That's like, it's true. And, uh, you know, my poor wife, she's got three boys and she's got me and, you know, there's lots of testosterone, no estrogen in our house. And, uh, and so, and they're all bigger than I am. And so you have a meal and the definition of a millisecond is from when you say amen to when they grab for the food, right? That's the definition of a millisecond. And she's always trying to bring manners into the home, which is proper. And, uh, and so... We're on, you know, we're giving somebody trouble for what they're doing. One of my sons says to me, yeah, but dad, he who eats the fastest gets the mostest. 
Well, I can't argue with that, right? You're into round two, the quickest. So when I hear, you know, the idea of devouring, okay, I got a picture of that with my three boys. Now, here's the beauty of what God does in Scripture. So that same word devour is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a story, or not a story, it's a teaching by Paul to the church in Corinth about the glory of the resurrection of Christ and the importance of the resurrection of Christ. And in verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, death is swallowed up in victory. You could actually translate it, and death is devoured in victory because it's actually the exact same Greek word. So you have Satan trying to devour God's people, and you have God, through Jesus, who devoured death, who devoured Satan through the victory of the resurrection. It's a beautiful twist on words. That is the reality, friends. If you claim relationship with Jesus, that's where victory is. And then in John 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 10, you have Jesus describing the devil's agenda. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The agenda of the evil one. I, Jesus, came that they, that you, may have life and have it abundantly. There's the two agendas, so clear. There is no neutral agenda. Those are the clear agendas. The devil intended destruction for humanity. And what does he try, what does he actually want to do? He wants to drag you into hell with him. That's actually what he wants to do. Now, if you're a Christ follower, he can't do that because you're secure in Christ. So if you're, and hell, by the way, was created for him. It wasn't actually created for people. It's created for him and anyone he can take with him, anyone he can get to reject the gospel. So if you're a Christ follower, you say, okay, then what does he do with us? Well, what he wants to do is if you're secure in Christ, but if he can get you to reject who you are in Jesus, you will live with no joy. You will live under a burden. You will live in, in, uh, in pain, in emotional pain, and you will not be used by God to be able to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to others because you're too absorbed in your own pain. So if he can't take you with him, he's going to try and sideline you. He's going to try and get you to not believe you are who you really are in Christ and that you do not believe with the power that you and the authority you actually have in Christ. He's going to try and get you to, to sideline that, to push that away. So what should you do? Point two in your outline. You must choose to take the offensive. You must choose to take the offensive. First Peter 5, second half of verse 9 says, Resist him, firm in your faith. Resist him, firm in your faith. So our response should never be panic. It should never be fear. It should never be worry. To resist means to stand against. It's a term of defense and of victory. Why is there victory? Because Jesus' death and resurrection has won the decisive battle against the powers of darkness. But Satan has not been vanquished yet. That will happen when Jesus returns. So now he still roams the earth trying to bring difficulty to Christ's followers and to blind those who do not know Jesus from the truth and the hope of the gospel. So the battle continues. We do not have immunity, and that's why Peter is teaching. Both the saints in, in this context and us, that we should resist. And by resist, it's not hanging on to try and make it to the end. He says, no, do not live in fear. Do not live in worry. Do not live in anxiety. Be aggressive. Be positive. 
Be proactive is what he's saying. Stand firm in the faith. Last week, Pastor Ray did a great job on speaking on anxiety. And often the devil will use anxiety to get us to be self-absorbed, to get us to live in fear, to get us to be stuck in worry. And Pastor Ray last week said, no, cast your cares, your cares on the Lord. Like trust in him, step into him. If you haven't uh, seen or watched the sermon or listened to it, it's online. I suggest you do. And that's why Peter also says, be sober-minded. Take action. So in the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 3, it says, as a person thinks, so they are. So Satan is trying to get you to believe lies about God. All right, this starts in your head. The battle is in your mind. That's why the apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, said, put on the mind of Christ. He didn't say put on the behavior of Christ. Because he knows if you have the mind of Christ, live in obedience to the leading of the Spirit, you will act like Jesus act. Because you're thinking like Jesus thought. So the battle is always first in your mind. It says put on the mind of Christ. Recognize who you are in Christ. So you apply the truth of God's word, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the strength you have because you know who you are in the Father, your identity in him as his child, loved and accepted by him, and you walk in that reality as you live out your identity. It also, understand, it also means you understand when you are most weak. When are you most weak? Well, you think about it. When are you most susceptible to make bad decisions? I would suggest it it's, could easily be in one of these five states. When you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, when you're tired, or when you're bored. When do you make bad decisions? Think about it. When are you most susceptible, most prone to making bad decisions? Over years of pastoring, I've counseled lots of people and, and, um, and people uh, often struggling with stuff or struggling with what they watch on TV or the internet. And I'll say, well, when does this happen? Well, usually late at night. So I'll tell you what, here's my great strategy to help you beat this. Go to bed earlier. If you're in bed and you're asleep, you actually won't put yourself in the position of fatigue to make a bad decision. That's a simple place to start. I laughed. I was in between services. I was walking there and a lady walked by me and she just said, I have to go to bed earlier tonight. <laughs> That's all she said. I knew what she was talking about. That's all she had to say. When are you most susceptible? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored. When we're lonely, we often do things to try and make ourselves feel better, which ends up in addictions. Very common. When we're tired, we don't recognize evil for what it is. And we go, I just want to feel better. I just want to escape. And suddenly we've watched 10 YouTube videos or six movies or, you know, whatever it is. We go, what did I just do? And actually now I'm more tired because I went to bed way too late and put myself in a difficult position. Right? The evil one wants to get you off your game. He wants you to believe in lies. He wants to convince you that you need to self-medicate to feel better. You can't trust God in any way. So watch what you shouldn't watch, eat what you shouldn't eat, do what you shouldn't do, because you deserve it. That's what he's trying to get you to do. Get isolated. Lose perspective. Justify your decisions. All those things. So what do we do? Third point. Be aware of the devil's methods and your weapons against him. 
Be aware of the devil's methods and your weapons against him. So since the beginning of time, Satan has tried to get us off our game. Uh, Garden of Eden, he comes to Adam and Eve, and, he's conf- and they're confronted not by a threat, but by a temptation. In the book of Matthew, chapter 4, page 809 in your pew, pew Bible, he comes to Jesus. So Jesus has just come from being baptized, and now he's been led into the desert. And after 40, uh, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, and the scripture says he was hungry. Well, of course he was hungry. And it says, then the tempter came to him and said this. And the first word he used is so important. The devil comes to him and goes, if. Why is that so important? He says, if you are the son of God. Not because you are the son of God. If. So let's question your identity, Jesus. Let's question your authority, Jesus. Let's go after your ego, Jesus. Let's go after your identity. Like, let's put a big question mark around who you are. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the son of God, let's go after all this your identity stuff, and now let me go after a physical need. After 40 days and 40 nights, you're probably hungry. And so he goes after identity first, and and you think about it as often as someone goes, especially to a guy, well, if you're spiritual, if you're a leader, if you're a good employee. What do you mean if? I'll show you. Right? Jesus doesn't even go there. He doesn't even, he's like he ignores the devil. And he simply says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the, the mouth of God. I have food and a source of authority and identity, Satan, that is much greater than you are. It comes from my Father in heaven. That's what he says. He doesn't even play the game. And by the way, fathers, 40 days prior to this, Jesus gets the ultimate statement that a father can give a son. This is my son whom I love, and I am well pleased with him. There's nothing better you can say to your son or your daughter. Nothing better. I've often said to my boys, I love you because you're my boys. I don't care what you do in life, just follow Jesus and have a legal profession. It's my simple rules. Except now that you can sell marijuana legally, you know, we'll take that one off the list. It's like, you're my boys. I don't care what you do. I love you. I am proud of you. There's nothing I want to hear more from my dad than that. There's nothing I want to say more as a dad. And that's what our Heavenly Father says to us. And that's what he said to his son. And that's why his son goes, hey, I trust my dad. His second piece here says, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God. Again, if you say who you, you say you are. If you are who you say you are. Throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on, and on their hands they will bear up, lest, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So he takes the truth of Scripture and twists it by saying, misapply this Scripture by showing your power, Jesus. Because frankly, he's saying, I don't think you have power. I don't think you're who you really say you are. I don't think you actually have power. Prove it to me. Prove it to me, Jesus. That's what he's trying to get him to do. Prove it to me. Display your power. Jesus said, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So basically Jesus is saying to him, you know what, I trust my Father for my future and my safety and my purpose in this world. 
I do not need to prove myself to you, Satan. I don't have to prove myself to anyone. The only one whose face I want to put a smile on is my father. That's who I trust, Satan. That's how he is responding. Lastly, he says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. How can Satan do that? Well, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Like he's, this is his world, especially before uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. So he actually, he, he has the authority to make that offer. Except what he's saying to Jesus is, take the shortcut, take the instant gratification. Don't wait for your father. Don't wait for his plans and purposes for you. Don't wait for that painful journey. Take the glory that's right in front of you right now, and it is significant. And it is. So what does Jesus do in response this time? He stands on his authority, which, by the way, friends, is the same authority you have as a Christ follower. Be gone, Satan. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and he shall serve you only. And what the devil tries to do is to try and get us to elevate our personal needs, our personal wants, our personal instant gratification above God. That's what Satan tries to get you to do because he'll tell you, you deserve it. God doesn't care about you. This is, what he, this is how you get it is by putting yourself first. And Jesus says, no. And he stands on his authority. He doesn't argue with them. He just stands on his authority. And then after the devil leaves, the angels come. And so often when we resist the devil, then, then God comes and ministers to us. So Jesus refused to give in to ego, to power, to instant glorification, to meet his physical needs. He said, I trust my father. Here's the one difference with, between Jesus' situation and ours. And I have a very practical solution. So often we start buying into the lies of Satan because we don't recognize him. So we start going down that road of putting ourselves above God in some way of meeting our personal needs and passions that we want to do it our way. And as we do that, we suddenly perhaps we recognize it or friends recognize it. And we go, oh no, I, I bought into the lie. I bought into the lie. When I've done that, here's a simple tool that I've learned. When I buy into the lie, I repent of the lie I bought into. Or sometimes I go, I'm not sure. This doesn't seem right. And I'll even pray. I say, Jesus, show me the lie. What's the lie I've been believing? And through scripture, it'll come to me. I'll go, what's the truth? Jesus, show me the truth. And it's in scripture. And so I'll go, Jesus, please forgive me of this lie that I, that I bought into. And actually, I gave it power in my life because I started going down that road. Forgive me for that and this truth of scripture. So the lie of saying, God, God doesn't love you. You're not good enough for God. You know, you got to earn it. You got to work harder, Willie. You're a pastor. You better work harder. Start buying into that line. I go, oh, that's, suddenly I'll see it. No, I've been, what am I doing? I'm trying to earn my salvation. I'll go, Jesus, please forgive me of that lie, of believing that lie and behaving that way. What's the truth? The truth is, Jesus' father says to me, this is my son, because I'm his child. This is my son. I'm well pleased with you. Oh, thank you for that truth. You can't earn your salvation. It's only by faith, not through works, so no man can boast. Oh, thank you for that truth. I pray the truth, repent of the lie. How does it show up in our lives? A couple of areas. Relationships. Here's one I've seen so much over the years. People move into a dating age. 
and they want to get married and they're struggling to trust God for a spouse so they start trying to take control of those things. And so even they know that, that God calls us to marry, for a believer to marry another believer but they can't wait. They don't trust God so they start dating an unbeliever and they, start, and they fall in love with them and now they want to marry them. And they're hoping perhaps that person will come around but they've already shown that person that they are more important than God. And so in relationships we don't trust God and so we, we, we become yoked, we become married to an unbeliever because we don't trust God. I've seen that happen many times. Or in sexuality. We don't want to wait for, for God's picture of, of sex which is sex within a, a marriage between a man and a woman. And all society tells us no, you should have sex any way you want whenever you want, with whomever you want, regardless of their gender or yours. That's what society tells us. And anything that is a hindrance to that is evil. That's the basic message in society. And we say, well, I don't trust God for my sexuality because I won't get what I want. And God says, no, if you want healthy sexuality, if you want to experience sex the way I created it, it's within this context because that's best for both of you, man and woman. And we put that aside because we don't trust God. And money. We often don't trust God because we say, well, God, you know, man, Vancouver's an expensive place. And uh, I can't give money to God's work because Vancouver's too expensive. You know, somehow God's grace and care doesn't last in Vancouver. It's okay in Saskatchewan because it's cheaper there. But somehow, you know, he says he has the cattle on a thousand hills. But maybe there's enough cattle for Saskatchewan, but not for, not for B.C. All right, so we take control and we say, I don't trust God in this. I've got to do it myself. Family. I see this in parenting. People say, well, I can't trust God with my kids. I am the one who has to protect them. I am the one who has to shield them. I am the one who has to hover over them. Parents, if you struggle with this, I want to encourage you. God needs to come ahead of your children, otherwise you will not be a good parent. I'm so thankful my dad put God ahead of me. Because then he was the kind of dad I needed and could speak truth, God's truth into my life, even when I didn't want to hear it even when I was rebelling. God's word will guide us through the lies of the enemy. And God's word also is not just the revelation of truth, it's the revelation of the person of Jesus. And the more you walk with Jesus, the more you recognize the lies. Last point. Remember, you are not alone. 1 Peter 5, 9. Knowing that these same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter is telling the Christians in Asia Minor they should not fear because they are not being singled out for persecution. This happens around the world to Christ followers around the world. This is a common experience and we should expect it to be a common experience. We need to remember that the victory is in Christ. I can't say that passionately enough or frequently enough. It does not mean the battle is over. But because of the cross, we have assurance that the evil powers have been defeated because of Christ. And because of Christ's authority over them, we as Christ followers also have authority over them to engage in the battle. And in the beginning of Peter, First uh, Peter, he lays out this picture of who you are as Christ followers. He says, we have been chosen by God the Father, chapter 1, verse 2. Given a new birth in a li- into a living hope, 1, 3. Provided with an inheritance that can never perish, 1, 4. We are shielded by God's power, 1, 5. We've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light, uh, 2.9. God himself is building up individual believers into a spiritual house, chapter 2, verse 5. And he views his followers as a holy and royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God, chapter 2, verses 5 and 9. That is who you are.
as Christ followers. Last illustration. This gets really practical and very real for us. So my wife um, has suffered from heart palpitations uh, over a number of years. We figured out a few things. One of them we found out through testing. She has a form of tachycardia, which is basically an electrical short in your heart. And sometimes that can, that can make things go off kilter in the beat of her heart. It's not a dangerous thing. It's just there. Another time, 3 o'clock in the morning, she wakes me up. She's like, Willie, Willie, you got, we got to the hospital. I'm having a heart attack. I'm like, what? So we called a helpline, and, uh, and they asked us, uh, did she take any cold, 24-hour release cold medicine in the last day? Yeah, took Benadryl. Eat a sandwich. Excuse me? Eat a sandwich. So that's your medical advice? Eat a sandwich. Well, it'll slow down the release of the drugs in a 24-hour release drug. And she's allergic to one of the, the ingredients in Benadryl. We found that out. Stay away from Benadryl. Stay away from decaffeinated coffee. That'll make her heart go. It's another thing we found. She's okay with caffeinated, not decaffeinated. <laughs> go figure. Uh, but here's the other one. One day this was happening again, middle of the day, her heart's going, it won't stop, it won't stop, and she's starting to panic, and of course when you panic, it just makes it go more. And I felt this time this was spiritual. I put my hand on her and I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, Satan, I command you to leave my wife alone. And her heartbeat went back to normal instantly. So, here's the lesson. Satan piggybacks on things. So we may be dealing with real physical issues, but he'll come and piggyback to try and ramp up the anxiety, try and get you to take control. We may be dealing with real issues with our children, but he's going to try and get you to, to put them in the center of your life. We may be dealing with a, a genuine desire to be married. That's a genuine desire. But he'll come in there and say, oh, you can't trust God for that. So he will come and piggyback on things because he is smart. Generally, he doesn't come in the front door. He comes in the back door. Right? That's how he works. But he's also a second-rate lion. So he says he's like a lion. There is a real lion. Revelation 5, 5 says, But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne. Who? Jesus. Has won the victory. The real lion is the lion of Judah. Satan is a fake lion. He's masquerading as a lion. He's trying to bring fear and disorganization and, and, and confusion into your life. He's trying to see doubt. Be sober-minded. Resist him. Be spiritually clear-minded. Walk in community and recognize the authority you have as a Christ follower. That is the good news, friends. This is not something to be afraid of. Just walk in the identity you have as a Christ follower. If you are not a Christ follower this morning, this could have been a scary sermon. And the battle is real. My invitation is to you is to give your life to Jesus. He stands with open arms and says, I love you. I died for you. I want to make you my own. Come into the family, and I'll lead you in a prayer of that in a moment. Let's, close. Let's stand for closing prayer. So if you are not a Christ follower, just pray with me. A uh, very simple prayer. And then I would encourage you to go to the Welcome Center that's out in the lobby, and they'll love to walk with you through a journey. And then I will pray for us as a whole. Jesus, I want to give my life to you. Thank you for dying on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. 
I accept you as my Savior and my leader and my friend. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Guide me as I walk in this new life in community of the saints here at Willingdon to live for your honor and for your glory. And Jesus, I pray for all of us here this morning that we would understand who we are in Christ, that the spiritual battle is real, but that as Christ followers, we walk in the authority as your children, the authority in our identity in you, the authority of being filled and indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that for those who are struggling in this battle, that they will continue or engage in walking in community. I pray for your presence and your peace over them. I pray for your authority over them, Father. They would step into your word and apply the truth of your word into their lives. I pray that the places where lies have been, would be, lives have been lived out, where lies have been embraced, would be confessed as sin, and the truth of your word would be embraced as we walk in the identity that you have given us. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you that you give us that authority. And thank you for being our Heavenly Father and showing us on this Father's Day what fatherhood is truly like. And Father, I pray your blessing on all the dads here today. Father, I pray for those who are in difficult relationships. I pray for reconciliation, whether it's them and their dads or them and their kids. Father, for us as children, I pray that we would honor our fathers today for the good things they have given us, for the blessing that they have been. Be with us as we go from this place to be your people and to proclaim your wonderful name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.